Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. It's time for Justice Matters with former federal prosecutor and MSNBC analyst, Glenn Kirshner. long-form weekend podcast, this time we again discuss the Trump trials. First up, Glenn does his weekly legal recap. Thanks for joining me today on Justice Matters. Today's long-form podcast is going to be a bit Trump-centric. Wait, wait, don't scroll away. That's the first time I think I ever said that. I hear people on various social media platforms saying all the time, don't scroll away. Yeah, it's a strange new world for those of us, you know, of a certain age. Okay, I might be in my 60s now, and I certainly didn't grow up with social media, so I'm adapting, I'm adjusting, I'm trying to figure it all out. Of course, I often describe myself as e-incompetent. Truth be told, I probably have a bit of a tech phobia. You know, and I actually think I know what that's a product of, how I got it. And I'll tell that very short story at the end of today's Trump-centric chat that we're about to have. And the reason it's a Trump-centric chat today is because things are heating up, right? Accountability is actually peeking out over the horizon because you know what's coming, friends. The Trump Trials. Cue Trump Trials theme music. So what I want to discuss today is probably the most asked question I've gotten or I've seen in comments and posts over the last few weeks. And it's an excellent question. It's a timely question. The question is, can we impanel a fair and impartial jury to try the crimes and the cases, the many crimes, the many cases involving Donald Trump? And let me not bury the lead, friends. The answer is absolutely. Okay, so you may Say to yourself, well, Glenn, what the heck qualifies you to talk about or to assert that prosecutors will be able to impanel fair and impartial juries in the many cases involving Donald Trump? Okay, good question, fair question. You know, every time I start a new semester at George Washington University and I meet my, you know, 55 or so new undergraduate criminal justice students. You know, I teach a class called Criminal Justice Arrest Through Appeal. One of the first things that I say to my students each semester is, okay, what gives me any business, any right teaching you all about the criminal justice system arrest through appeal? And then I try to answer my own question by saying, you know, I spent 30 years as a prosecutor in courts, both military and civilian in courts both federal and local, in courts both trial and appellate. And, you know, I did virtually nothing else for 30 years but try cases, prosecute cases, argue criminal appeals on the government side, on the prosecution side. So when it comes to prosecuting cases, when it comes to, you know, investigating suspected crime in the grand jury, indicting cases, preparing cases for trial, litigating motions, picking juries, trying cases, handling sentencing hearings, dealing with matters of parole, probation, and supervised release. You know, I feel like I know whereof I speak, even if it happens to be the only thing I know. And when it comes to jury selection in particular, you know, I had the incredible good fortune 
of trying more murder cases than I think anybody else at the Department of Justice. At least that's what some of the old timers at DOJ told me. You know, I actually had to count up my murder trials when I was leaving the U.S. Attorney's Office. Why? Well, because my boss told me to. I was asked not only to count them up, but to list the names and the docket numbers and the presiding judge and the defense attorney and the outcome of all of my murder cases. And I was asked to do that for a really flattering reason. It had to do with being nominated to a, a particular organization, a group called the American College of Trial Lawyers, the ACTL. And I was really honored to have anybody consider kind of recognizing my body of work. But what I know is that I picked a heck of a lot of juries in my 30 years as a prosecutor. I know the ins and outs of jury selection. And there are several reasons that today, more so than in days past, I think Jack Smith's team will be able to pick and impanel a fair and impartial jury. And you might say, wait a minute, Glenn, no way, right? It sounds counterintuitive that today, as opposed to days past, there's a, a better chance of picking a fair and impartial jury because today, you know, things are so much more polarized, so much more divided. You know, we seem to live in a time in America when you're either on one team or you're on another. And if you're on one team, you might hate all of the members of the other team. I don't know, that's never been my view of America. You know, friends, I've always said, look, it's not us and them in America, it's just different kinds of us. You know, I would take it one step further and say, frankly, we're all brothers and sisters. We should all look out for one another. And yes, I know the counter argument is that there seem to be people who refuse to acknowledge facts. You know, people who are so entrenched and enamored of their side. And I'm gonna say particularly people who are so enamored of Donald Trump that they're either unwilling or unable to discern between fact and fiction, between truth and fantasy, between you know, facts or alternative facts. But I, for one, am not ready to give up trying to bridge the divide, and I never will be. Pollyanna? No, so be it. All right, let me get my mental train back on track, friends. You know, the older I get, the more my mental train seems to jump the tracks and head down side alleys and detours. Let's get the train back on track because I'm really excited to talk about jury selection and why Jack Smith's prosecutors will be able to impanel a fair and impartial jury, not without risks, not without challenges, but I think Jack Smith's team is up to the challenge. But let's start as we always do with our legal recap of the past week and what a week it was. It was actually a good week, friends. It was a good week on the justice front. Why do I say that? Well, first of all, Judge Aileen Cannon, yes, yes, I can feel you all cringing, and I'm cringing right along with you, but at the moment, Judge Cannon remains the presiding judge on Donald Trump's case, even though, you know, she seems to have something of an appearance of conflict, even though it seems that her impartiality can reasonably be questioned, which is the precise language of the federal law, 28 United States Code section 455 for those of you scoring at home. It requires a judge to disqualify themselves if their impartiality can reasonably be questioned. Not that she can't be impartial, not that she can't be fair, not that she have an actual conflict. The law says if her impartiality can reasonably be questioned, and hers can, but she's decided that nobody has any business reasonably questioning her impartiality, so she is not recusing herself, apparently, or at least thus far, and I don't expect that to change. All right, we're still waiting to see if Jack Smith files a motion to disqualify her, files a motion to recuse, but given that Judge Cannon 
just issued an order setting a trial date, and given that Jack Smith has already filed his first discovery letter, which we're going to talk about in a minute because boy is it sweet, I don't suspect Jack Smith's team will file a motion to recuse or remove Judge Aileen Cannon from the case. Okay, maybe I'm wrong about that. We'll see. But now let's try to uncringe. Is that a word? If you can cringe, can you uncringe? Okay, let's try to uncringe and talk about the order that Judge Aileen Cannon issued setting a very speedy trial date. And that's a good thing. Now, I'm not going to go all cynical and say, yeah, Judge Cannon wants to try the case as soon as possible so she could tank it at the earliest opportunity, right? I want to believe, friends, that even Judge Cannon, having been smacked down royally by the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals for badly botching the earlier litigation over the classified documents, I'm not going to rehash all of that now. We've talked about that at length previously, but I'd like to think that Judge Cannon has learned a lesson. I'd like to think Judge Cannon cares at her young age about the long career as a federal judge, all of which is in front of her, and then that she wants to retain and regain, you know, some credibility as a judge. You know, I think she can go a long way to repairing her credibility and her reputation if she presides fairly over the first trial of a criminal former president of the United States. And Judge Cannon just issued an order. She set a trial date. That trial date, August 14th, 2023, this coming August. Now, was I shocked? by the rapid trial date Judge Cannon set? No, because there is this thing called the Speedy Trial Act, right? It's the law that a defendant must be tried within 70 days from the time he or she is arraigned on the indictment. Donald Trump was arraigned on June 13, and the prosecutors, the government, has 70 days to take Trump to trial. So no, I wasn't at all surprised that Judge Cannon selected a trial date that was about 63 days from the time of Donald Trump's arraignment, because that simply comports with the federal law, the Speedy Trial Act. However, in my experience, friends, federal cases rarely, almost never go to trial within 70 days of arraignment. Why? Well, often the defense team, the defense attorneys representing the defendant are always moving for continuances of the trial date. They're trying to kick it as far down the road as they can because they know delay is their friend. And frankly, prosecutors sometimes will even agree to these defense continuances, or sometimes prosecutors will seek continuances of their own, but they have to be keenly aware of that 70-day speedy trial clock. And trust me, federal prosecutors always are. The first thing we do on the day of arraignment is we count 70 days, and we put that on the jacket, on the file, so we keep track of it, even though, as I say, cases rarely go within 70 days. Why? Well, because the dirty little secret is there's a way to stop the 70-day speedy trial clock from running. Anytime a motion is pending before the court, the speedy trial clock stops. It pauses. And that's one way to avoid the 70-day deadline. So yes, in my experience, federal cases rarely go to trial within 70 days. Sometimes it happens. For example, in the in the run-of-the-mill case, like a 922G case, for example. What is a 922G case? Well, a felon in possession of a firearm. If you're a convicted felon and you possess a firearm, that's a federal crime. It's not just a state crime, it's also a federal crime. And we call them 922G cases because that's the section of the federal statute that applies to felons in possession of firearms. So, Sometimes a 922G case 
can go to trial within 70 days of arraignment, but even that is kind of rare in my experience. But let me return to my original point. I was glad to see Judge Cannon set an August 14th trial date. She also set a motions deadline. Motions will be filed by July 24th. And she talked about, in her order, the need for the prosecutors to give discovery. Discovery is a fancy word for giving the defense attorneys all of the evidence in the case so they can prepare to defend against the charges. And I think, you know, we're off to a good start, you know, on the speedy trial front because goodness knows we want this case resolved quickly and promptly and fairly and justly. And we want it resolved well before the 2024 presidential campaign cycle is in full swing. And it looks like Judge Cannon is determined to do what she can to make that happen. And that's a good thing. You know, you got to criticize a judge when they screw up, when they abuse their discretion, when they get reversed by the appellate court. But you also have to give them their props when they're doing something that is good and important. And even if it's just sticking with the rules and the law still, you know, you've got to be fair and you've got to call it both ways. Call it as you see it. But it is a good news story that Judge Cannon set a very speedy trial date. Though again, I will always hasten to add that trial date probably won't hold. It will probably get pushed at least a little. You know, I suspect Donald Trump's defense attorneys, at least the defense attorneys du jour, because he's always, you know, cycling defense attorneys through. They're coming, they're going, they're quitting, they're being hired, they're quitting. I suspect the defense attorneys du jour will rush into court and say, judge, judge, we can't possibly be ready to go to trial on August 14th. We need more time. And of course, one of their goals will be to delay, delay, delay this as long as they can, because delay is the friend of the defense generally. And I think Trump's team will try to push it as close to the 2024 election as they can. But conversely, I expect Jack Smith's team to walk into court and say, Judge, the prosecution is prepared to go to trial on August 14th. But, you know, if I had to bet a dollar, You've probably heard me say before that I'm not a gambler. I'm not a high roller. One dollar is my betting limit. Well, I would bet a buck that the August 14th trial date does not hold. Hopefully it doesn't get pushed out, you know, too far, right? Maybe the case ends up being tried, if not in August, you know, maybe in October, November, December, which would still be fine, still far enough out from the November 2024 presidential election, but I don't expect the date to hold. Even though I, I do think Jack Smith's team will very likely take the position that they're ready to go to trial and they will force the defense's hand and the defense will seek a continuance, will seek more time. Coming up, did special counsel Jack Smith's discovery letter cause Donald Trump to erupt in anger? Glenn talks about that next on Justice Matters. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. In a surprising move, special counsel Jack Smith filed a discovery letter that turns over all of the grand jury transcripts. Did this enrage Donald Trump? Here's Glenn. One of the reasons I think Jack Smith's team is gearing up and getting ready to go is because, you know, at light speed, they've already given lots of discovery, lots of evidence, indeed a huge mountain 
of discovery of evidence. And that's the second good news story. Because on June 21st, just a few days ago, the prosecutors filed a motion with Judge Cannon indicating they have provided discovery. They have provided evidence and information to Donald Trump's defense attorneys about what evidence they will introduce at trial. And when Donald Trump got that discovery letter, and when Donald Trump saw some of the evidence Jack Smith will be introducing against him at trial, Donald Trump blew a gasket. That's gonna be the third good news story that we'll get to in a minute, but right now let's stick with good news story number two, and that is the discovery letter that Jack Smith's team filed with the court on June 21st. First of all, friends, I urge you to read this discovery letter. You can find it online because it really is a, a study in brevity and clarity. It's just a little over four pages, much of it double-spaced. And today I want to focus on just one thing in that letter. I want to talk about what, in my opinion, is the most important part of Jack Smith's discovery letter. You know, the letter talks about the prosecutors turning over to the defense documents obtained via subpoenas, evidence obtained via search warrants, transcripts of grand jury testimony, right? Testimony taken before grand juries in both the District of Columbia and in the Southern District of Florida. And that is the important piece of this letter. They are turning over all of the grand jury transcripts. Why is that important? Well, for a couple of reasons. First of all, prosecutors are not required to turn over all grand jury transcripts. Typically, prosecutors only turn over grand jury transcripts for witnesses they intend to call at trial, prosecution witnesses. But in this case, Jack Smith's team decided to turn over all grand jury transcripts. The second reason this is pretty notable is because prosecutors typically turn over grand jury transcripts much closer in time to the trial. Jack Smith's team said, nope, we're turning it over all and we're turning it over now. And I will bet you, friends, that one buck that there are lots and lots and lots of grand jury transcripts that we know nothing about, right? There were probably so many more witnesses that Jack Smith's team presented to the grand jury than we can imagine or that we know about. We know about a handful of the witnesses, in part because there are some really good, determined reporters and investigative journalists that have been staking out federal court in Washington, D.C., watching who comes and goes, who heads up to the third floor of the federal court where the grand jury sits. So we know about some of the witnesses who have appeared and also some of the witnesses disclosed to the media that they went into the grand jury, which they're permitted to do. Prosecutors can't disclose it. Agents, investigators can't disclose it, but the witness is not prohibited from saying I was subpoenaed to testify before the grand jury. But what I can promise you, friends, is we know a relatively small subset of the witnesses who testified before the grand jury about the crimes of Donald Trump. And now, now for the first time, Donald Trump knows who the witnesses are and who testified against him in the grand jury. Indeed, he now knows what those witnesses said about him and his crimes because his defense team has all of the grand jury transcripts now. And here's the beauty of that. We've talked previously about how the witnesses against Donald Trump are largely Donald Trump's friends and his associates and his lawyers and his former lawyers. They're his cabinet members. They're his executive branch officials. One might even be his former chief of staff. I think we'll know pretty soon whether Mark Meadows testified against Trump in the grand jury. Probably bet 50 cents of my buck that he did, maybe even 75 cents. And even, if I neglected to mention it, some of Donald Trump's own family members, right? We saw some of them testify to the J6 committee 
providing some damaging information. I'm betting some or many of them were also compelled to testify before the grand jury. And so what is the takeaway from all of those witnesses testifying in the grand jury about Donald Trump's crimes? Donald Trump will be convicted with evidence presented by a chorus of Republican voices. Let me say that again. Donald Trump will be convicted with evidence presented by a chorus of Republican voices. And it makes it so much harder to attack those witnesses on cross-examination. Let me take just one example, right? Let's use one of Donald Trump's lawyers, a person who was expressly on Team Trump, a lawyer who was defending Trump, a lawyer who was fighting zealously to protect Donald Trump's rights and interests. Let's use that person as an example. Now, some of these lawyers, I, I think and I hope were honorable, some of them not, right? Some of them will be prosecution witnesses at trial against Donald Trump. Some of them will very likely be indicted sometime in the future. But what many of them, the honorable ones, were doing is they were trying to collect up all of the classified documents Donald Trump stole from the federal government and was unlawfully retaining at Mar-a-Lago and elsewhere. And they were trying to give them all back to the federal government. They were trying to comply with the grand jury subpoena demanding as a lawful court order, essentially, that all of them must be returned. And as they were trying to protect and promote Donald Trump's interests, what was Donald Trump doing? He was hiding them from his own attorneys, using his co-defendant, his co-conspirator, Walt Nauda, so-called body man and main box mover, to hide the documents from his own attorneys, the attorneys who were trying to protect Trump's interests by getting the documents and returning them to the federal government and complying with the grand jury subpoena. Friends, it's very hard to beat up a lawyer like that, a prosecution witness like that, one of Donald Trump's lawyers as being what? Biased against Donald Trump? What, are you going to call him an angry Democrat as Donald Trump is always labeling his enemies? You're going to call him a never-Trumper? Heck, he was working for Donald Trump, trying to protect him. And Donald Trump screwed him and put him in harm's way and potentially exposed some of his own lawyers to criminal liability. Now, you're going to see some lawyers, as I say, perhaps go down if they decided to join in Trump's conspiracy, Trump's criminal efforts to unlawfully retain these documents. But you're also going to see some of them testify as prosecution witnesses because they were actually trying to do the right thing when they were representing Donald Trump. But Donald Trump now knows what all of these witnesses said in the grand jury about him and his crimes. Now let's just for a minute, friends, take a mental trip down to Mar-a-Lago. Donald Trump's third-rate Florida resort. Uh, just bear with me. I know it's not a place any of us want to go, even mentally, but let's take a mental trip down there. He has an office at Mar-a-Lago that he named the 45 office because, you know, he was the 45th president of the blah, blah, blah. Now, I don't know how insecure you have to be to name your private office after you were unceremoniously booted out of the Oval Office by the American people. Of course, he wasn't satisfied with their opinion, with their vote. He tried to unlawfully and unconstitutionally retain the power of the presidency by ordering an attack on the Capitol, trying to deny Joe Biden his election win. But I guess he figured the next best thing is I'm gonna go to Mar-a-Lago and I'm gonna name my office the 45 office. I mean, how insecure do you need to be? Now, while we're on our little mental road trip, we're at Mar-a-Lago, maybe we're in 
the 45 office as a fly on the wall. I'm not going to make a Mike Pence joke here. What do we know intuitively goes on in the 45 office? Well, Donald Trump's lawyers and employees and associates and family members and lackeys and lapdogs and flunkies and sycophants stream through Donald Trump's 45 office all day long. And what do you think they were filling Donald Trump's head with? Oh, Mr. President, Mr. President, you the man, you the man, you've done nothing wrong. Everybody's out to get you. It's a witch hunt, Mr. President. Can't you just see everybody who was summoned to the 45 office saying exactly what they knew Donald Trump wanted to hear? Assuring Trump he did nothing wrong. It's a witch hunt. You'll be fully exonerated. You the man. You the man. And then, when those same people were compelled to testify before the grand jury, directed to raise their right hand, they were administered an oath, they swore to tell the truth, they were instructed by the prosecutors that if they lied under oath to the grand jury, they can and would be charged with things like perjury, obstruction of justice, maybe even be investigated for being part of an ongoing conspiracy with Donald Trump. Those same witnesses, I will bet you a buck, did not tell the grand jury, eh, it's all a witch hunt. Donald Trump did nothing wrong. No, what they probably said was, you know, Donald Trump and his man, Walt Nauda, were moving boxes around, including right before the FBI and the DOJ came to retrieve them. They were hiding the boxes. I heard Trump say he wasn't giving them back, not to the federal government, not to the grand jury pursuant to a subpoena. Oh, and by the way, he showed me some really cool classified documents. I suspect so many of the witnesses that were so close to Donald Trump, right? People who in the indictment were designated as Trump employee number one, Trump employee number two. There were designations in the indictment. Trump lawyer number one, Trump lawyer number two, Trump lawyer number three, Trump staffer, even a Trump family member was quoted in the indictment. You know, a family member who in a brief text exchange, but a pretty darn telling text exchange with Trump's co-conspirator, Walt Nauda, was identified in the indictment only as a family member, and in the text, Walt Nauda referred to her as ma'am with a smiley face emoji. So I've been calling her ma'am smiley face emoji. You can read the indictment. I think it's on page 23. And ma'am smiley face emoji, a Trump family member, is telling Walt Nauda, and I'm going to paraphrase here, but this is what was being communicated. Tell Donald not to take the boxes on the plane to Bedminster because there is, quote, not, all caps, room, because we're bringing lots of luggage. So that's what the words say. Tell him not to bring the boxes. Uh, uh, we're bringing lots of luggage and the boxes won't fit. Come on. You know how I read that text as a career prosecutor who has seen lots of text messages and written communications that are in code, very thinly veiled code. You know how that struck me the very first time I read it when the indictment was unsealed? I can't swear that this is what was being communicated, but you know, was a Trump family member really acting as kind of ground control and a luggage handler calculating, you know, how much weight the aircraft could carry? So, you know, hey, Walt, you better tell Donald that, you know, we have too much luggage, so he shouldn't bring the boxes. And he tells him that in all caps, do not bring the boxes, you know. 
if it was, I, we don't know who Ma'am Smiley Face emoji is, but if it was Ivanka, you know, it would be Ivanka saying, tell dad not to bring the boxes full of stolen classified documents. If it was Melania, it would be her saying, tell Donald not to bring the boxes of stolen classified information. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it was really Ivanka or Melania or another ma'am smiley face member of the Trump family really concerned with the weight distribution on the plane. But you know, Trump knows who the witnesses are that will testify against him and he now knows what they said in the grand jury and he did not take that news well. You know, I have here Donald Trump's post, what he posted right after he learned who the witnesses are against him and what they said about him in, in the grand jury. Now, mind you, this post, which I'm going to read, is in all caps. There's not a lowercase letter among the 82 words that make up Trump's post. And friends, I'm going to try to read it as I suspect it sounded in Donald Trump's mind in his head while he was composing it. I wish I could do impressions or impersonations. I can't. I would love to be able to do an accurate Trump, but I don't do impressions. But here is what Donald Trump posted after he learned that a whole bunch of witnesses had given him up in the grand jury. Congress, please investigate the political witch hunts against me currently being brought by the corrupt DOJ and FBI who are totally out of control. This continuing saga is retribution against me for winning and even more importantly to them, election interference regarding the 2024 presidential election. It will be their updated form of rigging our most important election. Look at the polls. They can't beat me. MAGA at the ballot box. The only way they can win is to cheat. Stop them now! Exclamation point. He sounds confident. And of course, we know Donald Trump drafted this for obvious reasons, but included in there is when he said this will be their updated form of rigging. He spells it T-H-E-R-E. -E. So yeah, Donald Trump typed this himself with those tiny little hands. Friends, calling this an unhinged rant doesn't really accurately or adequately describe it. He is literally begging Congress to stop them now. He's begging Congress to obstruct justice. He's begging Congress to unlawfully intervene and interfere in ongoing criminal prosecutions. He is desperate, as well he should be, because he's about to be tried and convicted and sentenced and imprisoned. We'll talk more in the future about why I firmly believe a jail cell is in Donald Trump's future. And all of that is just in his federal case in Florida. He will also be indicted in Georgia for election interference. Just find me 11,780 votes and corruptly declare me the winner. He's going to be tried in New York for dozens of felony crimes. He's going to be indicted again by Jack Smith for crimes in violation of our nation's espionage laws that he committed in New Jersey at Bedminster. He's going to be indicted for the insurrection. My math is right. That makes five criminal prosecutions that will be brought against Donald Trump. And that takes us to our discussion of whether a fair and impartial jury can be impaneled to try the many crimes, the many cases of Donald Trump. Coming up, can the court select a fair and impartial jury in the classified documents case? This is Justice Matters. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. 
Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. The classified documents case will be held in southern Florida in a deep red county. Will the jury selected be impartial? Here's Glenn to explain. Okay, friends, let's talk about jury selection. I mean, so many people are concerned, you know, deeply concerned, rightly concerned about the ability to find 12 fair and impartial jurors to try the current federal case against Donald Trump that is pending against him in Florida. And before I get into the nuts and bolts of jury selection and why I believe Jack Smith's team can and will impanel a fair and impartial jury, let me start with the silver lining part, right? We have plenty of time to talk about the dark cloud. The silver lining is that this is far from the only criminal prosecution that will be brought against Donald Trump, as we were just discussing. We know he's already indicted in New York. He will get a fair jury impaneled in New York. We know he's about to be indicted in Georgia. He will get a fair and impartial jury in Georgia. We know Jack Smith will indict him in New Jersey. He'll get a fair and impartial jury there. We know Jack Smith will indict him in Washington, D.C., my backyard, for the insurrection, and he will get a fair and impartial jury in Washington, D.C. I suspect all of that is true. So there's going to be lots of opportunities to hold Trump criminally accountable for his crimes, not just in Florida, but let's turn to Florida, right? And let's talk more broadly about jury selection. You know, as I've mentioned, I had the pleasure, I had the honor, I had the privilege of working as a prosecutor, working to vindicate the rights of victims, working to protect the community, working to protect the rights of each and every defendant in the cases I prosecuted, you know, making sure that everything was done on the up and up, you know, that all police, all agents, all investigators did their work in accordance with the rules of law, the rules of procedure, the Constitution, making sure that everyone on our prosecution team acted in accordance with the rules of law, the rules of procedure, the rules of evidence, and the Constitution. And as a result of choosing to spend a career prosecuting cases, friends, I selected lots and lots and lots of juries in murder cases, in RICO cases, in conspiracy cases, in obstruction of justice cases, in cases involving all manner of violent crimes, street crimes, burglaries, robberies, assaults, rapes, arsons, etc., etc., etc. And I'd like to think that I learned a thing or two from selecting all of those juries. Here's some of what I've learned. You know, every juror who comes into the process of jury selection has their own set of beliefs, their own life experiences that inform those beliefs. Lots of people have biases in favor of or against some group of people, for example, or members of some profession. Some people, unfortunately, as we know, have biases and prejudices against groups of people because of who they are, the color of their skin, their religion, their you know, country of origin, uh, where they came from, who they love, who they choose to marry. The sad reality of life in America is there are lots of people with all sorts of prejudices. You know, as but one example, There are some people who are biased in favor of the police. There are some people who are biased against the police. There are some people who are biased in favor of prosecutors, defense attorneys, judges. Some people are biased against those folks in those professions. You know, there are some people who have very strong, deeply held views and opinions about all things political or ideological. You know, we embrace those differences, right? I mean, in America, we not only get to hold our own personal beliefs, we get to express them courtesy of the First Amendment without the government trying to shut us up. And the whole goal, the purpose of the jury selection process, what's referred to as voir dire, which loosely translated means to speak the truth, is to explore the juror's potential biases, prejudices, preconceived notions, 
life experiences that might make it difficult for them to sit fairly and impartially as a juror in a case. The goal is not to change their mind. The goal is not to persuade them that they shouldn't have these firmly held beliefs. The goal is to determine whether they have any belief that would disqualify them, that would make them not well suited to serve as a juror. And friends, let me tell you, judges are keenly interested in selecting fair and impartial juries. You know, in my experience, I appeared before well over a hundred judges, military and civilian, federal and local. They were all interested in selecting fair and impartial juries. And I'm not prepared to say that Judge Aileen Cannon is any different, but I'm keeping my eye on her. So what happens during jury selection is there are a series of standard questions that the judge will ask of all potential jurors, all prospective jurors, and there might be 70 or 80 or 100 potential jurors in the jury pool for jury selection. They answer all of those questions, often by filling out a form, and then each juror, one by one, is brought up to the bench. And we go through individual questioning, individual voir dire with each potential juror. And we all talk. You know, we look at the jurors' responses to all of the standard questions, and then we ask follow-up questions to explore whether they have any firmly held beliefs that would make it difficult for them to fairly and impartially sit as a juror in the case. And the key is not, and the hope is not, and the expectation is not that we're going to find jurors who don't have any firmly held beliefs, who don't have any political affiliation, who don't know anything about the case, right? Everybody's got their own opinions and life experiences, their own preferences and aversions, their own politics and ideology, their own party affiliation, perhaps, none of which is disqualifying. What is disqualifying is if any of those things would make it difficult for them to sit as fair, impartial jurors and decide the case based only on the evidence introduced at trial, not on their own politics or their own pre-existing or firmly held beliefs, not on any biases or prejudices they might have. And friends, all of this discussion with each juror is done under oath. What does that mean? Well, the jurors take an oath during the jury selection process and they swear under the penalties of perjury and frankly a possible contempt charge that they will truthfully answer all questions, including questions about whether they can sit as fair and impartial jurors. And friends, I have to tell you, in my experience picking jury after jury, the overwhelming majority of citizens who are summoned to court for jury service tell the truth under oath about whether they can or can't sit fairly and impartially. And I know that because I've had so many say, I can't be a fair juror in this case. I have strongly held beliefs. I have biases. I have prejudices. I have real world experiences and I have reached conclusions that are so firmly held that I don't think I can be fair. I don't think I can judge this case based only on the evidence. Let me give you one example that I've heard many times from jurors. Some will say, I have had bad experiences with police officers or my family members have had bad experiences with police officers and I don't think I can ever credit the testimony of a police officer. I've also had jurors say, I respect and honor the blue and I think I would always credit the testimony of a police officer. That's just one example of an infinite number of examples of something that would disqualify somebody as a juror who could sit fair and impartially because you have to be able to, for example, assess the credibility of every single person, police officer, civilian, everybody, without bringing these preconceived notions that would cause you to say, I will always believe or I will never believe. Now, I know, friends, you're probably saying to yourself, well, people can hide their biases and their prejudices. 
their preconceived notions, their extreme politics or ideology. They can try to hide it all and lie about it to try to get on the jury to either convict Trump or to acquit Trump. Yes, they can try. But I have to tell you, friends, we usually sniff them out. Coming up next, some people are asking if we can tell during selection if a jury member is trying to fool the court about their biases. Glenn explains next on Justice Matters. When selecting an impartial jury, is it possible to determine if a potential juror is trying to mislead the court on their ideals and motivations? Here's Glenn with his take. Now, let me return to something I said earlier in our chat about how in this day and age, we have tools to help us sniff out inappropriate jurors if they're not being honest with us during voir dire, during jury selection. And these are tools we didn't have when I started as a prosecutor back in the 80s. We have this thing called the internet. Now, assuming it's not an anonymous jury in the Florida case, right? Assuming the prosecutors and the defense attorneys know the names and identities of the jurors, and as of this moment, that's an open question. We don't know if the jury will be anonymous or not. I tried RICO cases with anonymous juries because of the pervasive threat to the jurors posed by the criminal organization, the RICO organization we were prosecuting. But assuming the prosecutors know the names, the identities of the jurors, they can sure do some research, right, to figure out what kind of online presence a particular juror has, such that if they walk in and they say, I have no strong political leanings one way or another, I can be completely fair and impartial, right? I have no strong feelings about Trump. Well, whatever answers they give, you may be able to confirm or deny by looking at their online presence, if they have an online presence, and it seems like most people do. And if that online presence contradicts what they were trying to tell the judge, the prosecutor, and the defense attorney during jury selection, well, then they're going to be excused. They're going to be challenged for cause, and they're not going to be permitted to sit as a juror on the case. And I know that sounds like a very pat answer to a very complex problem. Can we pick a fair and impartial jury to try the many crimes and the many cases of Donald Trump? But friends, in my experience, the answer is yes. Recognizing I've never tried a former president of the United States for his crimes, nor has anybody else, given that this is a maiden legal voyage that we are all taking together. But let me tell a quick story that you all may have heard me tell before, or you may have heard told by others, but it's an important story, and I think it's pretty compelling in that it reinforces the point that Jack Smith's team will be able to select and impanel a fair and impartial jury. Remember Paul Manafort, Donald Trump's corrupt and criminal campaign chairman? You remember the guy, he was shoveling confidential polling data to Russian operatives, a guy named Konstantin Kalimnik, because you know Trump and his campaign were trying to steal the election by using foreign interference. How in the hell Donald Trump and company have not been held accountable for that. I will never understand, but let me not get sidetracked with the negative. Remember when Paul Manafort was tried in federal court in Alexandria, Virginia, the Eastern District of Virginia, U.S. Attorney's Office, just across the river from D.C.? A jury was selected, and one of the jurors was a self-described MAGA. The reason we know this is because that juror gave an interview to the media after the trial concluded. And I believe she was the only juror who gave an interview. And here's what she said. And I would hold fast to this, friends. I understand it's not a perfect parallel between Paul Manafort being tried and Donald Trump being tried, but I do think it's pretty instructive. So, so let's hold fast to this. The juror said, I'm a MAGA. I'm a Donald Trump supporter. I love Donald 
Trump. Mind you, I'm taking liberties with the exact language, but this is the message she communicated during her media interview. She said, every day when I drove to court to sit on the jury in the case of United States versus Paul Manafort, I wore my red MAGA hat as I drove to court. When I parked at the courthouse, I took my hat off. I left it in the car. I went into the courthouse. I did my day's worth of jury service. I got back into my car. I put my red MAGA hat back on and I drove home. I'm a Trump fan. I'm a Trump supporter. By extension, I didn't want to believe Paul Manafort, Trump's campaign manager, did anything wrong, committed crimes. So friends, it sure sounds like this juror had some preconceived notions, maybe some biases in favor of Trump and his team members by her own admission, by this juror's own admission. But you know what she said when she gave that interview? She said, yeah, I was a huge Trump supporter. MAGA, wore my red hat. But I took an oath to decide the case based only on the evidence that was presented at trial. And that evidence proved Paul Manafort's guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. So I voted guilty, said the red hat wearing MAGA member of the jury. A fair and impartial jury can be impaneled to try the many crimes and the many cases of Donald Trump. Yes, I know it might still sound a little naive. They still feel a little Pollyanna-ish. I get it, friends, but you know, I also believe to my core, fair juries will be impaneled in the Trump trials. And they will decide the case based only on the evidence they see presented during the course of the trial, and they will vote guilty, and they will convict Donald Trump for his crimes. Because justice matters. Can I add as a footnote, friends, even if one ultra hardcore mega MAGA sneaks onto the jury and the jury hangs 11 to one, 11 for guilty and one for not guilty, it's the beauty of a hung jury is that you get to retry it and retry it, the federal prosecutors will. All right, friends, let me take two minutes maybe three, to tell that quick story I promised I would tell to the extent you're not tired of hearing me drone on at this point. And it has to do with why I think I have what could probably be called an e-phobia or a tech-phobia. So when I was in college, undergraduate, at Washington and Lee University, and I was a journalism major after I failed out as a business major and switched over to journalism, which I did courtesy of my mentor and faculty advisor, Clark Mollenhoff, a remarkable man, a Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative journalist. Thank goodness he basically told me that I was going to be a journalism major because I absolutely sucked at business. I had a class where, in the journalism school, where what we did each day was we would pull the stories off the AP wire. Those of us of a certain age remember the AP wire. You know, it was literally a roll of white tape. And on that roll of white tape, a machine would type out various news stories of the day from around the world. And you would tear that piece of white tape off. You would read the story and then you would write a short news account, a short news story based on what came across the AP wire. And after you wrote that story, what we did as part of this journalism course is we would put together an evening radio news broadcast. I think it was the 5 p.m. local radio news, the local station in Rockbridge County, Virginia, which is where Washington and Lee University is located. And after we would do the radio news at 5, we would then go on to do the TV news at 6 p.m., again broadcast to the local Rockbridge County, courtesy of a local TV news station. I'm sure there were dozens of people watching at any given time. But you know, as a college student, it was a pretty cool experience. It was a formative experience. It was a little anxiety producing too, kind of writing the news and going on air, first on radio and then on TV to read the news. But what a great, great experience for a college kid. 
And that was back when computers were just becoming a thing. So when we would write these news stories every day, we would you know, bang these stories out on the old time typewriters, right? Put our white piece of paper in, we use that little roller to scroll the piece of paper to the right place and we would write our news story, then we'd pull the piece of paper out of the typewriter. Gosh, I miss those days. But they also had this thing called a computer. And I'm gonna use the term mainframe. I don't know what that means, but I think I was told that the mainframe computer is in that room over there. And you'd look in that room, there was this gigantic machine that looked like it came from the future. And we were told by our professors that we could no longer do every news story on the typewriter. We had to do three news stories a week on the computer machine. So I didn't like it, but my professor said I had to, so I did. They taught us how to use the computer machine to put news stories in there. And so I dutifully did my three stories a week you know, on the computer and everything else I did on the typewriter. Now, I didn't really understand this computer thing, but I did it. And then one day at the end of the week, I went to retrieve the stories that I had dutifully saved on the computer machine. And I was told that the computer crashed and all the stories were lost. I, I said, well, I still get credit for doing them, right? I did precisely what you told me to do. I didn't do it on the typewriter. I did it on the computer machine. And they said, nope, nope, we can't retrieve them. Nobody gets credit. I raised my hand. I said, now, professor, when I type out my stories on the typewriter, I pull out the white piece of paper when I'm done, I put it in my notebook, I keep it, and my notebook never crashes. My work is never, you know, magically erased by a machine. And I get credit for it, which is really nice because, you know, I've put time and effort into producing it. So can you explain to me why the computer is better than the typewriter? I don't remember the answer I got. I'm sure it probably wasn't to my satisfaction, but I do think that's when I developed my aversion to computers, something that over the years has probably ripened into an e-phobia or a tech-phobia. Oh, maybe not really. I'm kind of joking. I'm kind of overstating it. But, you know, I'll tell you, drop me in an auditorium with a hundred people or a thousand people and tell me I have to go up on stage and run my mouth about something, you know, that I know just a little bit about. I'm fine. I'm comfortable. You know, no real anxiety. I find that fun. I find it challenging. Sure, I'll make mistakes, but you know, that doesn't ever bother me. You know, they do say you learn more from your mistakes. So I guess I should be one learned dude by, by this point. But put me in front of a computer, you know, and, and tell me that, you know, I don't know, I have to download a new app. I break out in hives. Again, that's probably an exaggeration. I don't break out in hives, but I do experience anxiety. I don't know why. Maybe I'm not alone, but you know, learning new stuff on a computer or mastering it or trying to fix something on the spur of the moment that has gone wrong, you know, when I'm in the middle of an interview or working on a deadline, my goodness, that for me is anxiety producing you know, more anxiety producing than I was trying murder cases. I got nervous, but you know, I kind of felt like when I was in trial, I understood the universe of the information and the environment, but I've never felt that way sitting in front of a computer, which is probably why I am sitting here today in my little office slash studio and piled all around me are legal pads, and I do all of my daily videos by putting my thoughts and my outlines up on a huge dry erase whiteboard. That's where my outline lives until I'm done that video. And then I, you know, erase it all and put up the outline for the next video. Yeah, I touch the computers only when I have to, which yes, as we all know these days is uh, all the time, but you know, I still try to minimize my interaction with the dreaded computer.
Anyway, friends, that's my story and I'm sticking with it. And maybe someday I'll get over my tech phobia, but I wouldn't bet a buck on it. Friends, thanks for sticking with me today through our long form Justice Matters audio podcast. If you'd like to know where else you can find me, I am on all of the platforms, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. You can find me at Glenn Kirshner 2 my name and then the number two. You can find my daily YouTube videos on my YouTube channel, Justice Matters with Glenn Kirshner. You of course can find these audio podcasts that drop during the week and once on the weekend, wherever you ordinarily find your podcasts. And then finally, if you have any interest in supporting our all volunteer work here at Justice Matters, feel free to come on over to patreon.com. You can sign up to become a patron. You can support our all volunteer efforts, our mission, our content. And if you do, I'll send you some Team Justice and Justice Matters stickers and a personal handwritten note of thanks. So friends, as always, please stay safe, please stay tuned, and I look forward to talking with you all again soon.